0: people who went to Cuba on your behalf. Good stuff. It is, by all means, good stuff. Welcome again to First Christian Church. To those of you here in the West Order Term, I'm very glad you're with us. To those in the East, I'm, we're also glad that all of us are coming together as one congregation today. I'd invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of Matthew. While you're turning there, for guests, let me introduce myself. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team here, and I'm very glad, as we've mentioned, that we're with you today. And uh, looking forward to some time together. Matthew chapter 4 is where we're going to be looking in just a few moments. If you don't own a Bible, Bible um, take the one that's in the rack here in the West, in the East, or there's some people moving around with them right now. We'd be glad if you would take that home as our gift to you, all right? So um, before we step into, today, into today's message, last week um, we, we, we looked at the temptation of Jesus last week, and in light of that... Um, during the communion time we had communion after the message last week intentionally so that people could reflect on well what are the issues that people face what are the issues that you faced as an individual in light of the ways in which jesus dealt with temptation because just because you're tempted doesn't mean you sin but nonetheless how do you deal with those temptations and in a reflective meditative exercise we asked everybody to fill out a card if they wanted to to just kind of say hey wayne staff, pastoral team, I'm really dealing with this, and I'd like you to pray with me about that, and frankly, we were overwhelmed. There's hundreds of cards here of very intimate details of people's lives in ways that, frankly, I don't know that I was expecting everybody to respond that way quite so powerfully, and so throughout the past week, uh, I've been praying over these, and we've had various members of the staff, um, we assigned some cards to particular staff members, and Some of you may have heard from us this week in that regard, but I'd like to right now at the top of this service, or the top of this message, pardon me, spend just a moment in prayer over this stuff, okay? The stuff of our lives together. Would you join me in prayer? God, as people have responded to their needs, to to the places in their lives where they just feel like, man, this matter keeps coming up, and it's such a temptation from time to time, or perhaps always. God, I pray... I pray you would graciously work in all of our lives. We want to be like Jesus. We want to say, okay, there's the temptation, and then we want to turn away from it. We want to turn away from sin. We want to be men and women, young people of God, who uh, walk in the power of your Holy Spirit in, in righteous and holy lives. We can't do it in our own strength. We ask that you would help us to do it through your work within us, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I just want to say thank you for the trust, um, the transparency, the, the way in which you st- allowed us as staff members to step into your lives. And uh, I consider that a real honor. So for today, uh, I, I've had this story that I want to start with today, uh, kind of in the back of my mind ever since I saw it a number of months ago, saying that, that's such a strange thing. What th-. Well, I'll just tell you. Th- that I, this guy, his name is um, Walter Cavanaugh. And, um, you know, in your wallet, you probably have one or two credit cards, maybe three or four, maybe 10. I don't know if you're into a department store credit cards. This guy, though, um, has close to 1,500. Now, here's his story. He used to be a financial planner (laughs) 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 until he retired 15 years ago. He's 75 years of age. And he is the world record holder for holding the most valid collection of valid credit cards. Uh, What you see there in his jacket is 1,497 different credit cards that he has. He's in the Guinness uh, Book of World Records. And um, he explained, well, I I have $1.7 million in active credit from all those credit cards. And um, this is how it came about. Uh, ABC News interviewed him and said, I got started in the late 1960s. Me and a buddy in Santa Ana, California, um, Santa Clara, pardon me, we made a silly bet. The guy who could collect the most credit cards by the end of the year was going to win dinner. So I was fresh from the Peace Corps, and by the end of the year I had 143 cards, whereas my friend only had 138. He almost has, if you keep listening, he's always got this. Well, bless his heart. He's still a pharmacist. <laughs> like I was back then. If, if only he'd worked a little harder... He could be like me, and I, he could be the one here today being interviewed by ABC News. And I'm just imagining how, what's going on in this guy's head. Oh, my poor friend, the pharmacist, struggling struggling to get by on a pharmacist's salary. Whereas he could, you know, he's there counting pills. Me, I'm counting cards. It's way better. I don't know that it is, but none. there you go. By the way, he has a perfect credit score, and he only uses one card. He pays it off each month. But apparently his goal is to continue to be in the Guinness Book of World Records. He wants to continue collecting. And I've got to tell you right off the bat here this morning, amassing a large number of credit cards is not my goal in life. I don't assume it's yours, unless you want to give Mr. Kavanaugh a run for his money. or <laughs> That's how I just thought about that. You give him a run for his money or, if <laughs> you will, a run for his credit. We need, we need Jeff going on the drums right there. Anyway, what's your goal in life? Has it got anything to do with how many credit cards you can have? Or maybe your goal is, I don't want so many. I have a number of differing goals, things that I'd like to see take place in my life. But there's one in particular that reflects our scriptural passage today. We're looking at the book of Matthew today, as we have in, in the last few weeks. And we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to be in the book of Matthew for a good number of weeks through the summer, guys. So um, hang with me. We're just kind of slowly making our way because, hey, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, it'd be kind of important to pay a little bit of attention to Jesus for a little while. So we're going to do that. Matthew is a biography of the story of Jesus written by one of his disciples. Yeah, it's the first book in the New Testament. And when we left off last week, Jesus had just been baptized. Look down at your Bible and see that that's at the end of chapter 3. He went into the wilderness for 40 days of spiritual discipline. And then he had the encounter with the devil that in, in regards to temptation. That that's what prompted these cards last week. And he has started his ministry. He's about 30 years of age. And um, I have an observation about that, sort of by the way, that's not... It's kind of a tangent, apart from what we're going to discover today. And that is, from time to time, I'll have young people, in, maybe in their 20s, come to me and say, you know, Pastor, pray for me, and can I get some advice from you? Because my, the progress of my career is not going as fast as I want it to, and people are not paying enough attention to me yet. And sometimes, if, it, the, if it's the right moment, I'll point out something like this. Well, if the Son of God... Jesus, who had all of heaven backing him up, fully God, if he had to wait till he was 30 years of age for him to, if you will, figure out what he wanted to be when he grew up, then it's okay if you're in your 20s and you're still trying to work it out, friends. Um, if it took him 30 years to say, okay, this is where I'm going, then hmm, what about us when we get impatient? Read with me, Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, Matthew chapter four verse twelve okay so here 's what 's happened right there. John is jesus cousin, and John, known as john the baptist we 're going to be introduced to a different man named John by the time we get to our, the end of our time together save it John the baptist jesus cousin, also in ministry, and he 's kind of had the limelight for a number of years, but he 's now put in prison a long story to that, and the result is that Jesus is, if you will, can step into the limelight, if you will, and can kind of begin to see ways in which his ministry can flourish. So with that, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. So it appears right here that in order to start this new ministry, Jesus said, well, in order to kind of get a fresh start, I, I need a new space. And so he left Nazareth and moved to Capernaum. Nazareth was where he had been from age 2 through to age 30. And he, 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 he leaves because in some ways he says, you know, I, I just can't do it here at the, here at the house because these people... You know how it is, the folk back home struggle to see you when you grow at times. As a matter of fact, a a period of time later, he went to visit his hometown in Nazareth and to talk about the ministry, how it had been developing and everything. They kind of just said, oh, you're just the the carpenter from our city. As a matter of fact, it's said this way in Luke chapter 4. Jesus says to them when he gets to Nazareth, it's going to be on the screen, he says, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Maybe you've experienced that. You know, you go off to college, or you go to a different city to get a new job, and you grow, and you change, and you, if you will, you change the dimensions of your life, and back home, if you you go back home to a high school reunion, they're still trying to put you back in the shape you used to be, how they remembered you from high school. I'm quite convinced that one of the most important roles that we have as a congregation is to look at each other's lives and help you to change and help each other to grow and help each other to, to see life in a new way and to say, I'm not going to be the person I was in the past. And as you change, then one of the roles that we have or the responsibilities we have is to help you step into new life approaches, new habits, and new service moments. A matter of fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 mentions this. He says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so he says, don't be the same shape you used to be. Change who you are. Step up to the plate. Become a follower of Jesus Christ and say, I'm not going to have those old patterns. What's fascinating is he says, don't be, don't be shaped by the world anymore, but be transformed. Look different by the renewing of your mind. It's right after that that he goes into a whole list of the ways in which you can step into service to others. After, cha- after saying, these are the ways in which I want you to change the way in, you th- in which you think, then he talks about teaching and serving and generosity and showing mercy and the like. And maybe you didn't act that way in the past, but i got to tell you, friend, after Christ has taken over your life, then you can change and you can live in a whole new way, perhaps even shocking those who didn't expect such kindnesses from you in the past. That's all very possible for you. It really is. It's possible that that could start today. And so Jesus says, I'm going to have to get a new space for people to accept me. And he moves from Nazareth to Capernaum. Um, We say Capernaum in, in English. It's really probably a better way to say it, to pronounce it, would be Capernaum. It's a seaside town. It was a seaside town on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. It's still there. It's now just a ruin. You can go visit it. Um, and uh, that's where Jesus spent much of his ministry, up on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, quite away from Nazareth, which is down far, far much further south, down near Jerusalem. He moves there, and I want you to remember again that what I'm going to keep pointing out is that Matthew, as he's writing this biography of Jesus and telling what happened, he will repeatedly say, okay, you need to make note that um, any time there's a... a, a, a Anytime I can point out that Matthew is connected, that pardon me, that Jesus is connected to the Old Testament, Matthew is going to do that. He wants them to see. Okay, this is written for Jewish people. They know what we call the Old Testament, and so that's why you have. So in, he says that there's these prophecies about something really cool coming out of out of Cap- Capernaum. So, verse 13 again, if you read with me. Leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived at Capernaum, which is by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, that's the area around Capernaum. The way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles. The people coming out of there, those people who were living in darkness, have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So Matthew is pointing out, hey, years ago in Isaiah, this is 600 years beforehand, there was this discussion and this prophecy given that there was really cool things. There's going to be light and freedom and grace coming from something that happens up in that Naphtali area, that Zebulun area, which is, by the way, Capernaum. It's something really cool is going to come out of there. And so here it is 600 years later, Matthew is saying, you know what was coming out of there? Jesus was coming out of there. And then we read on from there. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The ministry is now started. As he was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting an end into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So here's the crux of our conversation together today the, these four guys that make a decision to follow Jesus. And may I remind you that. These four guys were soon joined by eight other men who said, hey, they basically formed Jesus' staff team, his disciples, and they're going to walk with Jesus, they're going to work with him for the rest of his ministry life, and the fact that there's 12 of them in the long run is really significant. Again, Matthew wants to say, how is Jesus like like the people of the Old Testament? How is he the Messiah that's pulled out of the Old? How is he like Moses? Moses brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. How many nations, or how many tribes and, if you will, families did Moses work with? Do you remember? Twelve. And so here he has, Jesus has twelve disciples, pointing out that there were twelve tribes, twelve sons of, the, of Jacob, and so forth. And so he's trying to, again, tie Jesus to what happened in the Old Testament, so that, um, of course, they didn't, ha- they didn't call it the Old Testament, but nonetheless, in the Scriptures of the Old... Jesus is the guy that they've been talking about for a long time. So we'll come back to these guys in just a minute. But let's read the rest of the passage. Verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. You say, well, I thought he was in Israel. Well, yeah, when you get to the northern part of the, the Sea of Galilee, the northern part of Israel, you can actually, from the hills up there, from the Golan Heights, you can look over the heights, over the hills, and see Syria right there. So modern-day Syria is right there. Ancient Syria was right there as well. So that whole area is Syrian in, 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 to some extent. People brought to, brought to him who were ill with, with various diseases, he, he heals them. Those suffering with severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and paralyzed, what did he do? He healed them. Consequently, as a result, large crowds from Galilee. Then it grows, the Decapolis, all the way down to Jerusalem and Judea and the region across the Jordan, followed him. So let's go back to the men now who follow Jesus and agree to be his disciples. Because once they agree to do that, they form this team around him and they begin taking this ministry and it takes off. If you will, Jesus' career and his public persona begins to grow. And the key word for us today when it comes to these four guys is the word follow. You can see that in verse 19, two guys chose to follow him, Peter and Andrew. He calls them first, you see the word you see the word, "I want you to follow me." Then they make a decision in verse 22, actually follow. You see the word theres again." And then we get to verse 22, two other guys, James and John. He says, "I want you to come be with me," and they too decide to, and the word is used follow again. That word in Greek, opiso. Means literally to get behind, to literally walk after a leader. To um, some of you may not be familiar with this thing called ghosting, where you try and sneak up on people and walk like them. And, and uh, that's it. It's basically I'm going to walk with you this way, and well, if you change directions, I'll change directions. In fact, it means. The change of directions is back when we make a decision to follow. That you're going along this way, and this guy over here calls you to follow. You change your direction. You change your perspective. You change your life approach, your attitude, and say, I'll, I'll be right behind you, right behind you, as close as I can get to you. For Peter and Andrew, James and John, that meant they changed their careers. They changed the, here they were fishermen, and they're no longer going to fish for a living. For the rest of their lives. Now they'll go out fishing now and then. And we'll see that throughout the book. Uh, and throughout our time together. But for the most part they change their careers. And they're going to change the world as a result of following Jesus. Why is that? Because true following involves a change. A movement from one status to another. A movement said, I'm go- I was going this way. Now I'm following Jesus. And I'm going to go that way. How's that going for you? How's the following going? If you were to go home to the home high school, or if you're in high school, put it this way, do the the, the kids who were kids or the kids who are kids, do they know that you're different as a result of following Jesus? Is it feasible? Is it feasible that there might be some here today who who are identified as Christians, yet they've not made any changes in their lives between pre-Christ and post-Christ? Is it possible there might be some people who here today who you left ages ago you left years ago but you could return home and you'd have exactly the same traits that you had when you left the house no one would ever accuse you of changing the shape of your life hey follower of Jesus Christ is that you because if that is you you're not really a follower you're a Christian in name only. Is there a difference between you and a non-Christ follower? Can people tell that difference? Can your family tell? Can your co-workers tell? Is it visible to your neighbors? Is it visible to other Christians? Is your difference than other people? Is it even visible on your Facebook or Instagram feed? When you say that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, do people believe that? You know, in a few weeks, um, we're going to be really uh, stepping into Easter and um we're going to be asking you to do some really strong invitations for that as the, in the weeks ahead. We've, got a, we've, we've entitled our Easter series an Easter week, if you will, hope. And we've got a lot of services scheduled, and we're going to be... We're, we've got billboards scheduled. We're, we're really going all out on Easter this year in, in a way that we've not done it before. And you're going to be asked to participate in that. And if you were to take an invitation to one of your friends or one of your coworkers or family member, will they accept it from you because you're a changed person? Or will they say, well, I don't know, I don't know what I need from that fellow, that woman, because they are no different than I am. Hmm. I guess that's what these cards were about last week, right? Hundreds of cards here saying, I want to be different. Most of the sentences on these cards begin with either this, I struggle with, or I am tempted with. Now, we prompted you in that regard. I get that. But how is that going? Did you have a better week? We explored the places last week where we struggle with the devil's impact on our lives. I, 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 think, there are, I think the devil's impact is unique to each of us as individuals, it's almost as if evil not only knows the peculiar shape and individuality of the fingerprints on our hands, but also the temptations that are exclusive to each person. It's like, oh man, I can't, I, 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 I've got to work on all of that. Well, yeah, you do. But can I remind you again that Jesus' ministry on earth was not always about a list of don'ts, more so Jesus' ministry was one that turned the rules upside down. He expected his followers to go beyond the list of negative sins to a lifestyle that was positive, to a lifestyle that said, hey, I'm going to be different, not because of, just because of things I don't do, but because I'm following, and I'm going to be changed. In other words, a following Jesus type of spirituality, yeah, it absolutely includes some sins to shun, but following Jesus is far more about thinking about the new possibilities of what your life could be. And that's really what these four guys stepped into. They said, yeah, we'll follow. We'll change. We'll change our careers. We'll change our life trajectory. And you know what? The possibilities were they were boundless. I mean, they could have gone anywhere, and they did. As a matter of fact, we are sitting here today as followers of Jesus Christ because of what they did. Because here's what happened. Right after Jesus called these first followers... In the air of Cap- Capernaum, he got all of them together on a hill, along with a bunch of other people, and gave them his basic life instructions. His, This is my approach to how we're going to do this spiritual business together. We've reviewed it in the past. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. In the past, we spent weeks on it. We'll examine it next week, but I just want you to look at some of his opening remarks. Looking through this sort of lens, what are the possibilities that, that Jesus says are, how could your life be just completely changed? For example, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he says this, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, we read that and we go, okay, we're the the light of the world. That's really nice. It's good stuff. But can I tell you, for the people who were listening to Jesus on that day, to the four disciples who are now following him along with the ones who are going to come pretty quickly thereafter, this was absolutely novel thinking. We don't see it all that revolutionary, calling ourselves, you know, the light of the world. We don't see it as all upside-down thinking, Because uh, while Jesus is calling these guys to a new life approach, it, 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 i got to tell you, friends, it was absolutely dramatic. Here's why. The other spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel at this time, they had, a, they had an exhaustive, I mean, they had the list of the things you couldn't do. Within just a few years of Jesus' death, the list grew and grew even more to the point where there were 365 things that you could not do, things that were considered sinful. They had one for every day. But here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying to his followers, Hey, I want you to know, yeah, there's some things to show, but you're not all that bad. In fact, you're pretty good. You're the light of the world. And we don't get it because we have no understanding of The operations of a world without light. We hear the light of the world. So? If we want light, we simply flip a switch, right? And the light comes on. It's not a big deal. But think about the kind of world these people are living in. If there was a Martian looking in from outer space in the day of Jesus. I'm not suggesting there are Martians. Maybe there are. I don't know. But nonetheless, if the Martian was looking from outer space and it was nighttime what would what would that martian see of the earth blackness right whereas today if that same martian or the martian's great 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 grandson is looking okay what's that that martian then sees all kinds of dots of light where the cities are and you know you, you you get on a plane you can tell where the cities are but in those days in the ancient world when jesus was saying to people you're the light of the world That was a big deal. It was revolutionary. Because they couldn't afford light, let alone light to light the world. Sure, they had a sense of lamps. History tells us that both the Babylonians and the Romans had invented all sorts of different oil lamps. But you had to be rich. You had to be ultra, ultra rich to have light in your house, to have a lamp in your house. You probably are aware of. How do we end up with light in our modern world? The light bulb. Any name come to mind? Thomas Edison, right? And along with a few other people. But for us, we don't, you know, we look around in here or in any room we're in, and you don't even pay attention really if the lights are on, do we? But go back just a little before Thomas Edison. Before, when people had lamps and candles. As a matter of fact, very few people had either, it was too expensive. When we think, well, they had candles. Well, no, they didn't. They didn't have candles made of beeswax because that was too expensive. They had something known as tallow candles. Have you heard that before? Tallow candles. You know what tallow candles are? They're, they're containers made of animal fat. Now, the animal fat gets old, begins to smell. And here's what they would do. They would heat that. It was, it was an arduous task. They'd have to heat up and then, slow, then cool heat up. And, and, and they'd have to then dip wicks, wicks in it. One time... In, a, in his diary the in seventeen forty three the President of Harvard noticed that he had produced seventy eight pounds of tallow candles in two days' work. It took him two days to do the heating, the cooling, and dipping the wax and dipping the wick in there. but he went through all seventy eight pounds in two months, and besides which, can you imagine burning animal fat in your house every night? What it would smell like the, and they say that the 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 light it gave off was really really quite poor, not very good. And that was if you could afford it. Most people couldn't. As a matter of fact, how, when you work for an hour, how much light can you buy for an hour? In the year 1800, if you worked for an hour at an hour's basic average wage, do you know how much artificial light you could buy in a tallow candle that you had to make yourself, but you had to go get the animal fat, you had to buy the wick, and you had to have a container? Do you know how much that one hour of work would buy you? It'd buy you 10 minutes of artificial light, that's all. So think about if your kids come home from school in the year 1800, which it's a different story, but if they were to come home and say, we've got an hour of homework, mom. Well, an hour of homework, uh, every 10 minutes costs an hour of work outside the house, right, so come on, quickly do the math. How many hours do you have to work in order to produce an hour of light for them to do homework? 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. Six hours, right? You have to do six hours of work to produce one hour of light. So most people couldn't do that. They're going to spend six hours at work, they're going to use that money to pay for the rent. By the year 1880, things had gone, had progressed dramatically. Because in the mid 19th century, Kerosene was discovered, it was discovered that you could actually burn kerosene with a wick in it, and it was fairly inexpensive inexpensive compared to tallow candles, so that by the year 1880, one hour of work would buy you a little more artificial light. One hour of work would buy you three hours of artificial light. So you work for, say, 10 hours a day. You could say, well, we're going to have light from six o'clock at night to nine o'clock at night and I'm going to take one of my 10 hours, I'm going to pay for that light, get three hours worth of light. How much, when you work on an average, with an average salary today, how much does your light cost? How much will it produce? Any guess? One hour of work, average work, today produces 300 days of artificial light because of the light bulbs that we have. So for us... When we flip a switch, we don't really think a thing of it. It's so inexpensive compared to the ancient days. And so when we hear that Jesus is saying you're the light of the world, we miss the point completely. The people listening to Jesus must have been overwhelmed. It was news. It was powerful. It was very expensive. It was mind-boggling that they could light the world, the world that was dark. Beloved, we can light the world. We can light the world with the upside down good news of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you, that's a great goal. That's a far better, a way better, a significantly better, a wildly more popular, better, a better, a better goal than what Walter Kavanaugh aspires to accomplish. See, I'm glad for Walter Kavanaugh, the guy, has, the guy who has um, the goal to have more credit cards than anyone else. But that's not my goal. See, I, I, I look at these four guys. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and I think about their lives. These first two disciples, we know a lot about them. Well, we know, we, we know a lot about three of them. We know a lot about Peter, James, and John. We know that in the years following this, while all the 12 guys that are going to become Jesus' disciples in the long run, while they all walk with Jesus, for some reason or other, Peter, James, and John kind of rose to the top, and they were, they were Jesus' closest confidants. And after Jesus died and was buried and rose again and went to heaven, those three guys, they formed the basis of what would be the development of the church. And we are sitting in pews and in seats today. And people are sitting in places of worship all around the world today because those three guys, along with their cohorts, they, 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 made, they made a traumatic impact upon the world. I get all that. But for the most part, Andrew here, Disappears from the record. And that's always interesting to me. Four guys, the first four initial disciples, and Andrew's gone from the record. Except when John, this John Zebedee is his name, right? The son of Zebedee. When he gives his account of Jesus calling the four guys, Andrew plays a larger role. Apparently... Andrew had been looking for a new approach to spirituality for some time. He'd been hanging out with John the Baptist for a while. And John introduced Andrew, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, introduced Andrew to Jesus. And look at what happens. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Peter and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he, Andrew, brought Peter to Jesus. And so they meet Sometime later, apparently, Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee and says to to Andrew and Peter, Hey, come follow me. In other words, while Andrew really wasn't mentioned much in the Bible, it was, in fact, Andrew who brought Peter to Christ. And through that action, the world was changed. See, my goal in life is not to have 1,500 credit cards. And for that matter, I don't want to even start up a candle-making business either. Light's pretty cheap, okay? Instead... I want to be light. I want to act in a way that honors Jesus Christ. And who knows, someone, somewhere along the way, somehow, I may, might bring someone to Jesus Christ. Now, you know, I'd love to be Billy Graham and have thousands of people come to know Christ. But I'm quite content with saying, you know what? My role is to be the pastor of this congregation. Can I influence people so that they too will bring people to Jesus Christ? It's not a case of whether or not we get our names in lights, But are we the light? Are we the people of God who have been changed as a result of this following? And as a result of following, our actions are different in the world around us. I want to be the light of the world. I want you to join with me in that task. After all, go back again and look at what Jesus says to Peter and Andrew. It's in verse 19. Can you look at it? I didn't even put, it's not even going to be on the screen because I want you to go and look at it specifically. Jesus shows up to these two guys on the lake. And he says, come follow me, and he gives them the goal. Come follow me, and what will I do? I will send you out to fish for people. You want the goal of life? Follow Jesus and consequently bring other people to him. Lead others to Christ. That's it, straight up, friends. That's my goal. And I invite you to do the same. Would you pray with me today? Father, for your work in our lives, we thank you. We acknowledge that um, for most of us here today, God, we've made a decision to walk with you and to, um, well, we'd put it this way we want to follow you, we want to follow Jesus. Help us to do that, God. As a matter of fact, God, maybe the word is implore. We implore that you would help us to follow you. We are aware, God, that apart from you, we are in darkness. But with you and the the life of Jesus Christ flowing through us, we are the light of the world. Help us to understand the significance of that. That this world is, well, it may have electricity now and there are now lights in dark rooms. It is still a place of darkness where evil temptation would try to take over the lives of people. We want to be your light that pushes back against the work of Satan. That pushes back against the ways of evil. We want to show people. We want to The language, biblical language, God, is we want to fish in the right way, doing the right things. And we pray this in Jesus' name.